grab your seat, if you would, please. Our children are ready to say the verses and to uh, sing for us. And I'm going to ask Josiah if he would come in and open us in prayer tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for letting us be here tonight, Lord, and thank you for letting us just come and sit down in the church for you and let us just learn about you, Lord, and I pray that you give Pastor Mike the words to say for us and the teachers in the back, Lord, and I pray that you just give us a good night in Jesus' name. Amen. job. We're excited about them. All right, take your songbooks now. Turn with you to song number 348, if you would. Let's stand together as we begin, as the choir comes up and the children go out. All right, 348, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. <clears throat> I must be go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but there. I shall never get of the gates of life if the way of the cross I be the way of the cross leads home the way of the cross leads home it is sweet to me as I onward go the way of the cross leads home I must need go on in the blood
to have each one to be here with us tonight. I want to just take a moment and recognize anyone's visiting tonight with us. Anyone here first time you've ever been here? I don't see any new hands. We're glad you're here. I'd like you to go ahead and turn your cell phones off. We're still doing good. No more, no more Dixieland music playing while during the service, so we appreciate that. Just keep up the good work. All right, I'm going to ask Brother Ted to come down and give us our announcement. Okay, it's good to have you here tonight. I must confess, I had my phone normally. I don't take my phone in the service, but I had it there at camp, and I was in the back. I had it turned off, and it was in my, I mean, I, you know, it's turned down, not off completely, but it was turned down, and I guess there was an advertisement came on, and I was wondering who in the world's phone is going off. And there was some ladies there. I said, is that your phone? No, no, it's yours. <laughs> sure enough, in my pocket, it was going. So I had to shut that thing off. So I took it immediately and went and put it up. I said, I don't take it back into the, in there at all. But I had it shut down completely. But anyway, sometimes that happens. But we're glad you're here tonight. And uh, we want to make just a couple of announcements. We want you to remember that uh, Tuesday morning, at 8 o'clock, the ladies will be meeting for the ladies' prayer group up on the upper end of the building. And then Tuesday night, uh, we'll be going out visiting at uh, 6 o'clock. Supper's at 5.30, if you so desire. And we'll also be going to Windridge to this coming Tuesday night as well. And this coming Wednesday at 11 o'clock, we do have uh, our uh, service over at Dominion. And uh, we want you to remember that, that particular meeting in prayer too. Uh, and then also uh, our Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study at seven o'clock. So those are the immediate uh, uh, scheduled things that we have. There are some in the future and some of those are in the bulletin. And of course, as you know, we are not going to be going up to North Dakota. And so uh, even though that's in the bulletin, we're not gonna be able to uh, to make that trip this year, okay? Ushers, if you would, come at this time and we'll receive our offering. And as they're coming, Brother Ed, why don't you just keep on walking and come right on up here, okay? <laughs> God bless you, Brother Ed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us out tonight. Lord, I ask you to be with the offering and... Uh, Use it for uh, what you need it for, Lord. Thank you for uh, tonight. I'll be with Preacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
songbooks, please, and turn with me to song number 329. Stand together and shake hands after the second verse of 329. Burdens are lifted at Calvary tonight. <clears throat> Days are filled with sorrow and care. Hearts are lonely and blue. Burdens are
neighbors tonight, all right? verse. Troubled soul, a Savior can see every heartache and tear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very You may be seated. Tonight, before our pastor brings the message, Sister Diana Rector is going to bring you a message and song. Just any day now, his face I'll see. Time I stop and take the time to look 
around me. I see the signs of His appearing everywhere. The things He said would come to pass are now before us. And I feel a strange excitement in the air. Just any day now, our Lord is coming. He'll be returning for you and me. For I've been watching and I've been waiting. Just any day now, His face I'll see. There's a longing in my heart for His appearing. I'll gladly leave behind these trials here below. For this journey has been long and I'm so weary. But Lord, somehow I feel I'm so much closer home. Just any day now, our Lord is coming. He'll be returning for you and me. For I've been watching and I've been waiting. Just any day now, His face I'll see. Just any day now, our Lord is coming. He'll be returning for you and me. For I've been watching and I've been waiting. Just any day now, His face I'll see. Just any day now, His face I'll see. Well, amen. What a great, great truth. The Lord is coming again. I thought of a couple of passages of Scripture while she was singing that song. And oftentimes I think we... We let that sort of escape us on a daily basis that we're to watch and pray and be ready at any moment. Revelation chapter 16, verse number 15 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There's a great truth in that verse. We are to be watching and we're to be ready. I'm afraid sometimes we get very busy in life and very, very busy doing things to the Lord. And we ought to wake up every morning and look toward the eastern sky and say, Is this the day? Is this today? We ought to be thinking about it during the day is we can come now and be ready because He is coming. He is coming. And it's certainly we're closer now than we've ever been. There's no doubt about that. You have your Bibles tonight. Uh, I want you to open with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. We're going to do another one of the parables tonight. Luke chapter 5. And whenever you find verse number 27, Luke chapter 5, verse number 27, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 5, verse 27, I would invite you to stand to your feet with me, please, out of the respect of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse number 27. I'm going to read through the end of that chapter, and uh, uh, we're going to look at something here in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 27 and through 39. 
After these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all and rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him, them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them, no man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new maketh the rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles, and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man having also... Uh, drunk old wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. Now what a parable. What a parable. I want us to read uh, verse uh, number 36. It's really the text. It's a lengthy verse, but let's read that verse together. You ready? And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh the rent, and the place that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. Here's a parable of the old cloth and the old bottles, the new cloth and the new wine. And we'll look at that tonight and, and see what that means. And so let's pray and ask God to bless us tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for allowing us to be able to come and be in thy house. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for the many blessings upon us this morning and for the moving in our service and the ones that came to an old-fashioned altar and got help and, and encouragement and peace and uplifting. And now, Father, we've had a good spirit in our midst tonight already with our little children and our singing and, Lord, our fellowship and the songs of Zion being lifted up and challenged and encouraging our hearts. Now, Father, we, bred the, we have broken the bread of life, and I have the great privilege and great responsibility to stand here before thy people again and deliver a message from thy word. Once again, I would ask you that you would forgive me of my sin. Please cleanse me with the precious blood of Calvary, and, O Holy Ghost, fill me with thy spirit, that I may be a vessel fit for thy service today to be used of you. And Lord, help me as I preach tonight. Help each one of us to recognize this important truth in this parable that our Lord was making known what is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we begin to look at these parables, and I mentioned briefly something this morning that I'll mention again about this one. They are, there are 39 parables that Christ spoke 
uh, that we find in the New Testament. It probably spoke a lot more than that, but that's the ones that are recorded for us. There are 39 parables. Now, uh, you begin to look at those parables, and some of them are only one time in one of the Gospels, and some of them are twice, but there's five of those parables that are mentioned in three of the four Gospels. Now, this is one of those parables. It's mentioned three times. Uh, you find it in Matthew chapter 9, verse uh, 14 through 17. You find it in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and here in our text in Luke chapter 5. Now, in, in all three of those uh, uh, places that you find this parable, it's the same time period. It is early on in the ministry of our Lord. Uh, he is calling His twelve disciples. He is uh, in what we term sometimes as a year of popularity. And He is uh, here uh, just beginning the earthly ministry, calling the disciples, beginning to heal folks in this passage in Luke chapter 5. Uh, there's great power. He's healed a lot of folk and, uh, and done a lot of miracles and people are gathering to him from all around the place. And, and, and so we find here that in, he gives this three times. I'm going to come back and camp on that in just a second. Do you realize if the Lord only gave it once, that's all that would be necessary? I mean, that's all he has to do. If he, if he says something once, then that's really all that has to be said. By the way, if he only said it one time throughout the whole Word of God, that would all be necessary. It would still be because uh, he's perfect and, uh, and immutable and he cannot change. and So therefore, it would be perfect and what we need to hear. But when the Lord says something twice, it's like, hey, you need to really pay attention to this. And If something is mentioned three times in the Word of God, it is God really trying to arrest our attention and trying to get us to see something and trying uh, to get us to pay attention to it. And it's easy to overlook this particular parable. It it's really doesn't seem like it has a, uh, a tremendous amount of truth in it, but it does have a tremendous amount of truth in it. And you find that Jesus is giving this parable in answer to the Pharisees. A lot of parables that you, as you study, was given in answer to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to say something against the teachings of Christ. They're trying to say something against what Christ is doing on the earth and He's earthly ministry, and so there's now a parable that he gives, and his parable uh, within itself is uh, set alongside doctrinal truth, and it's something that just you can grasp, and, and it makes the truth clearer. And so you find here in this particular text, now Jesus has been uh, preaching in the fore part of the chapter, and he comes out and he calls, here is a publican who is sitting at the receipt of custom named Levi, now that's actually Matthew is that Levi or Matthew, same person. He's the one that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And so you, you find that here he is, and he is sitting, doing his job. Now, uh, to, to us, and I say this often, I don't want to sound repetitious, but we, we probably don't understand what a publican was, nor do we understand how they were looked at in society, or looked upon in society. You see, the Roman government, when it took over a country and it defeated them in battle, then they would uh, take of that nation certain people and make them tax collectors. And it was their job to take taxes of their own people. Now, the Roman government did that for a lot of reasons, and it, uh, uh, they, they always used these tax collectors. But something happened. The, first of all, the, the Roman soldiers really didn't respect these tax collectors because they sort of looked at them as traitors. Well, here you are, you, we've 
taken your country and, and here you are now working for us, taking money from your people to give to us. Uh, the Roman government really didn't respect them at all, at, at, at any, because they looked at them as traitors. I can understand that. On the other hand, their own people didn't look at them as, except in the worst, lowest rung of society, because they looked at it the same way. Here you are, and you're taking our money and giving it to the Romans. And, and so in every place where there were uh, tax collectors, publicans, that the Roman government has set up, boy, they were looked at by everybody in society as being the lowest you could possibly get was a publican. And so Jesus comes out, he's preaching, he's starting his earthly ministry, and he comes by a publican who is sitting at the receipt of custom. In other words, he's sitting where the taxes are paid. He's collecting taxes off of people at that very moment. And Jesus walks by him and calls him into the ministry. And Levi follows him immediately. Now in our text, Levi then makes a great feast for Jesus in his house. Now understand, these, these publicans were, um, well, they were uh, ruthless. They had to be uh, in order to be able to survive. Uh, they really didn't uh, associate with anybody but just other publicans and other uh, wicked sinners. I mean, that's, they sort of grouped together because they were outcasts in society. And so he makes a great feast for Jesus in his house. And Jesus and his disciples that he's called at this point go to the feast. Now, if we, if we read above this, man, there's been people being healed. There's great things being done. And, and here Jesus is now. Uh, he, he's not over at the temple. Uh, he's not over at the chief uh, priest's house. He's not at the leaders of society's house. He's at a publican's house. He is in a place where that boy people don't like them, and and there's and not only is he there at his house, but he's participating in a feast, and 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 Levi has thrown him a feast, and here he is in his feast, and and and, and there's all these sinners with him. Y'all get the picture now. It's important that we understand the context of it, and we we see where it's at. Levi has been converted, by the way, and, and he is thrilled about being saved, and. And no one is going to heaven and he's throwing a feast. And by the way, he's doing something else. He wants all of his friends and family to hear who Jesus is. Now, not only is he just throwing his feast, he, he, he knows what Jesus has done for his heart. He knows the peace and the contentment that he now has that he never had before. And he knows all of that. He wants everybody to hear that. So he throws this great feast and Jesus is there. By the way, and what you notice, these Pharisees, they, they, they sure didn't like that. And uh, you, you go back to uh, verse number 30, and you'll notice that. And it says, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye... Uh, turn to me, pages. Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? So that's a question. I mean, these... Uh, these scribes and Pharisees and their disciples, the ones that followed them, they're very upset about this. And so they come to the disciples of Jesus and say, Why are y'all eating with them? Why are you associating with these people? I mean, these are wicked people, publicans and sinners. And what are you doing around them? 
What are you doing? And before they can answer, Jesus answers. And I want you to notice His answer because we're going to tie this in to this parable that He gives in just a moment. And Jesus answering said to them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, by the way, that's a great truth. If you are healthy and you don't feel bad and everything is going good, you're probably not going to go to the doctor tomorrow and make an appointment and go in and say, Hey, the doctor says, what are you here for? I feel really good. I'm here. That's probably not what's going to happen. Now, if you're sick, then you're going to go to the doctor and you say, I need help. And Jesus said, you know something? You people think you're righteous. Those scribes and Pharisees, they thought they were righteous and they thought that they didn't have anything wrong with them and they were certainly not going to come to Jesus and say, we need help. Uh, and, and so he, he says, you know what? You, you don't go to the physician unless you're sick. And then he uses that thought in verse number 32 to give them an explanation of what he's doing. And he says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. By the way, all of us are sinners. Those scribes and Pharisees were sinners. And they needed repentance, but they didn't think they needed repentance. And, and, and so he said, you know what? I came to call sinners to repentance. He is God in the flesh. He is the epitome of holiness and righteousness. There is no sin in Him. He is God Almighty. And He says, I came to call sinners to repentance. You know what He's saying to them? He said, hey, these people will listen to me. You're not. He's saying, these people have no desire to listen to, to my message of salvation because you think you don't need it and you think that you're righteous and you think you don't need any repentance. I came to call those that know they need it, those are the ones that I came to preach to. Those are the ones I call. And by the way, that hasn't changed. Do you realize tonight that the only people that come to Christ are those that come to a place where they know they need Him? You, you, you'll never get saved until you come to a place you recognize, I am on my way to hell. I am not righteous. I am not good. I cannot save myself. You, you never get saved you come there. No one ever has, no one ever will. In, in, in order to be saved, you, you must first recognize, I am a sinner deserving of hell. And by the way, there's still a lot of people like these scribes and Pharisees. They want to look at their own good works. They want to look at what they do and what they don't do and who they help and the things they do. And I'm a good person. And by the way, all of that may be true. But they're still sinners and on their way to hell. And so it's important that we understand the principle. Jesus says, hey, listen, you fellows don't think you need repentance. And the ones following you don't think they need repentance. Uh, but these people know they need repentance. And I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if, it's, if that's all he had said, by the way, he's answered their question. Ah, uh, but as is the case with all human nature and with these Scribes and Pharisees, that really didn't satisfy them. They've got to try to do something else. And so notice, if you will, in the next verse. Verse 33, And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but I eat and drink? Now they're, they're, going to, now they're trying to bring John the Baptist into it. 
Now, by the way, John the Baptist wasn't here questioning Jesus. His disciples wasn't there questioning Jesus. Uh, but now they're trying to drag in someone else. And they said, you know, we don't understand something. Uh, here's John the Baptist. Now, by the way, these scribes and Pharisees, they didn't like John the Baptist either. They, didn't, they hated him. Uh, they didn't believe him. Matthew chapter 3 is very clear about that. They, they didn't like him. Uh, so, so they're not trying to uphold John, but John did teach his disciples to fast and pray, and they were. And he said, they say, now, you know, here's John, and, and his disciples are always fasting and praying, and, and, and they're always in this real somber uh, mood, and, and our, that's what we do. We, we always fast and pray, and we're, we're in this real somber mood, and, but not you. You and your disciples, while well, you're you're having a feast here, and you're you're not fasting at all, you're eating, and 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 we don't do that, and you do that. John don't do that, so why don't you do that? You see the problem. You say we we don't understand. You you say you come to call the righteous uh, sinners to repentance, and boy, you're sure not doing a very good job of it. Look what John did, and boy, thousands of people were, went to John and and were saved and baptized there, and. And look what you're doing. You're doing totally opposite what anybody's ever done. All right. Now, when they say that, he gives them an answer. Now, what's the answer? Verse 34. He said to them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from him. Then shall they fast in those days. Now, that's an interesting thing. Now, he gives them an answer before he gives the parable. And he says, all oh, you, you, you people don't understand. He said, you, you understand in the wedding, uh, when you have a wedding feast, and by the way, they always had a wedding feast. Uh, the, the, those wedding feasts lasted a lot longer than just a day. They, uh, several days sometimes, sometimes a week. And, and he said, can, can the ones that are the attendants uh, of the, the bride chamber, the bride and the groom, do they fast while that feast is going on? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's a joyous time. They are in the presence of, the, uh, of that new couple, and they're, they're there at that feast, and they are rejoicing, and they're, they're excited over this marriage and over this union, and they've gathered for that reason, and because it's what it is, then there is this, there, there's this feasting and there's this joy. And he said, oh, there'll come a time when, when the bridegroom's gone and the, the, the bride's gone and the, they're, they're gone and then there's time for fasting then. Now Jesus is saying something. He's saying to them, you know what? I'm here. I'm not gone. I'm here on this earth physically. I am God in the flesh. And it is correct and right for my disciples to rejoice in my salvation, in, in my presence. Now I want to give you something before I move on to the parable. You and I as Christians ought to rejoice in our salvation. One of the things that I find that is, uh, I, I think sometimes a hindrance to people getting saved and, and, and becoming born again children of God is Christians do not rejoice like we ought to rejoice. And you ought to rejoice tomorrow at work. You ought to. 
You ought to rejoice whenever you're out in the public and you're doing business. You're in a grocery store or you're in some place paying a bill. You ought to rejoice. Say, y'all don't like that, do you? <laughs> paying a bill, I'm not going to rejoice. Uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, you ought to be rejoicing. You say, why is that? Because we, we should be in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, we come into our services, there ought to be rejoicing when we meet together. As children of God, there ought to be rejoicing and there ought to be happiness and pleasure. Not because we're having some activity necessarily, but because we're in His presence. Now let me give you a couple of passages. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want to prove what I've just said. I want you to open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 5. And, and, and I want you to notice the presence that you and I as Christians that we ought to experience. And this is something that, that we ought to extend to the world, no matter, by the way, what kind of circumstance we're in, no matter whether things are going really good or whether things are going what the world would say and what may be really bad. We still ought to have a presence of peace. We ought to have a presence of contentment. And we ought to know something about the presence of Almighty God. And so Jesus says, you know why my disciples are not mourning and sad? It's because they're in my presence. And they're in my presence. And I haven't left them, and I'm in their presence. And you and I ought to have that train of thought 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days out of the year, we're in His presence. Now you're in Hebrews chapter 13 by now, I trust. Verse number 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Now here's a great truth. Jesus has made a promise to those that are saved that he will never leave you, nor forsake you. So whatever's going on, we ought to know that we're in His presence. He never leaves us. Well, there's a truth in that. There's a great truth in that. You see, Jesus has said in our text to these uh, scribes and Pharisees, why do your disciples, why are they eating and drinking? Why are they having a feast? And why are they enjoying life? Because they're in the presence of Almighty God. That's why. Because they know who Jesus is, and they're in His presence. And you know one thing that ought to help you and I on a daily basis? We don't know we're in His presence. I don't want you to answer me out loud, but do you know that you're in the presence of the Lord today? Have you sensed His presence in your life? Whenever you get up tomorrow morning and you go where you're separate ways, you're going where you're at, you stay at your house. Do you sense the presence of an Almighty God? You ought to. You ought to. You ought to be content knowing that God is with you. You ought to have peace if you're by yourself. You ought to. You ought to. You see, the presence of an Almighty God is something that ought to give you and I comfort, and peace, and uplifting. Now, I found that to be true after I got saved. And I, I found the Lord, and the Lord found me is a better way to pray, phrase that. And As a teenager, and I got saved, and I found a peace and a presence. It didn't matter what was going on around me. It didn't matter whether my friends understood it or not. By the way, none of my friends understood it when I got saved. They were all lost like I was, and going to hell. And 
And, but I found something that a presence. Now, do you have that? You ought to. As a child of God, you ought to have that. You're in His presence. Let me give you one other, and then I'm going to go back to our text. I want you to look with me well to Matthew chapter 18, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, and we'll look at something else. Matthew chapter 18, I want to look in verse number 20. Now, there's something else that I think is important that we grasp. You see, Jesus says, hey, listen, the reason they're enjoying life is because they're in my presence. And you and I ought to enjoy life because He never leaves us, He never forsakes us, we're always in His presence. But there's something else. I want you to notice something in Matthew uh, chapter 18, and um, uh, I, I want you to actually uh, look, look back, if you will, in verse 18, and we'll start reading there, Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done to them my Father which is in heaven. By the way, watch the power there. Sometimes it's amazing to me how Christians are defeated and how we're downcast and that we, uh, that, that we, we face the things of life. We face life and, and, and we seem so gloom and doom. And Man, we ought to be happy. We, we, we ought to be the ones that stand out that everybody says, hey, why are you so happy all the time? Well, because I'm in the presence of an almighty God. Uh, do, do you not realize what power that God has given us? And, and he says here, he's, verse, verse 18 is interesting, he says, if you bind something here, I'll bind it in heaven. He says, by the way, if two of you will agree on earth as to pray about something and seek my face about it, I'll do it for you. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. Oftentimes there are things in life that Elizabeth and I are facing and, and the two of us will make an agreement. We're going to say, now, we're going to fast and pray over this. We're going to fast and pray. I'll give you something. Every time I begin talking about it, it's, a little, it's more than just the two of us. But uh, she showed me a little video last night of our grandson, Waylon. Now, some of you have no idea why this means so much in, in some ways, but uh, Leanne had taken, our daughter, his mother, had taken a little video of him walking without assistance across the garage to play with a stinking dog. That was a bad thing, but anyhow, he's going across there to pet this dumb dog that's in the cage. And she posted something about him. He's four years old. He just turned four last Sunday. Now, one of the things that with Waylon, Waylon was born a spina bifida baby. His, part of his spinal column was outside of his skin, outside of the, where it belonged. And um, as a matter of fact, whenever they found all of that out with Leanne, she was still carrying him as in March before he was born in June. And the diagnosis is pretty rough. As a matter of fact, some of the doctors didn't think he could even live. Every one of them said he will never walk. Every one of them. Uh, matter of fact, that he couldn't be born. They had to take him from her. He had to be operated on immediately. And I want to help you with something. Every time they take him back to an appointment, and they got all kinds of appointments with him, they're amazed at how good he's doing. But the day that Leanne Lucas found out, they came here, 
and Elizabeth and I and, and Jeff, Lucas's dad was here, and Jeff and Tammy and Leanne Lucas and Elizabeth and I, we all agreed that we'd do something. And so from that day until the day that he was born, and even after that for quite a while, every Thursday we fasted and prayed and asked that God would do something that everybody told us couldn't be done. You understand? I'm telling you as a Christian, you have, you have this great, great comfort and help. It's amazing to me how many husbands and wives as Christians have problems and they never covet together to pray about something. Elizabeth and I are constantly doing that. There's something we need to be settled in our lives and we, we covet about it, we pray together about it, we pray together and we pray separately and by the way, it's amazing what God does. And so that's what this is saying. That has nothing to do with the message, but understand something. As a child of God, you have the very presence of Almighty God, and you ought to be able to take things to Him. By the way, I believe the great vast majority of the reason Wayland's away is that's because God's answered prayer. Now, as you some doctors, no doubt about it, but even the doctors that were used are just amazed. <laughs> and God's doing what He's doing. Well, it's God doing it. And by the way, they give God the glory for it, which is another good thing. But I'm interested in verse 20. And I chased a rabbit there a little bit, but it'll help you if you'll let it. In verse number 20, watch what it says. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there and I am in the midst of them. By the way, when you come to the house of God, you ought to be excited. Not because of the program. Did you catch what I just said? Somehow or another, we have it in our heads that, well, I didn't enjoy that very much. You ought to enjoy the presence of Almighty God. You see, if you don't get excited about being in the presence of the Lord, and if you don't get excited about being in the presence of Almighty God, then whatever excites you is probably fleshly. Whatever excites you is not your knowledge that God has promised that if just two or three are gathered together in His name, He is in the midst. That ought to give you reason to be excited. There's great truth in that. Except we, we have come in our, in our hour, and by the way, it's, I can trace it all the way back. I can find it 2,000 years ago in the, the early churches that, that people say, well, you know, we, we've got to do the right thing in order to enjoy church. Well, you ought to enjoy Two or three people gathered together in the name of Jesus because He's there. He's there. He's there. If we're in His presence, man, you ought to have peace. And you ought to have contentment. So we gather together as a body of believers, you ought to have joy. Not because certain songs are sung. Not because certain things happen. But because He's here. He's here. And I'm afraid oftentimes we don't recognize that. He's here. He should be. We've got a church. By the way, it's church. I tell people all the time, we come to have church. We didn't come to play ball. Nothing wrong playing ball, but we come to have church. We didn't come to have a concert. We come to have church. You understand what I'm saying? Y'all understand it. Probably on a Sunday night he wouldn't be here. 
But when we come, we ought to come expecting His presence. And just being in His presence should give me peace and contentment. Now go back to our text. Now I've set the stage for the text. I hope I have. You see, here's these scribes and Pharisees, and they're condemning Christ for eating with sinners and publicans and sinners. He answers them, I come to call the sinners to repentance not righteous. You fellows don't think you need me, but these folks know they do. So I've come to help them. And then they're on to him because he's enjoying life. Why do disciples of John fast and mourn and pray? And why do we do that and you not do it? Well, because we're in the presence of Almighty God. You understand what I'm trying to say? I've tried to drive a point home, but you and I as Christians, we ought to be happy and excited, not because we've been made that, because we're in His presence. In His presence. Boy, that ought to excite us. Then He gives the parable. Now that's interesting to me. He answers their questions. He answers both of their questions. And then He gives the parable. Now the parable is, remember, it is a truth set along uh, a, 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 an analogy set alongside a truth that explains it better. So he's already answered their questions. He's explained it. But now he gives the parable. And I want you to watch the parable. Go back to verse 34. Excuse me, verse 36. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old, if otherwise both the new maketh a rent and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. He says, you know what? You have an old garment that's falling apart, it's got a hole in it, and you take a new piece that's not falling apart and strong, and you sew that in real good, and you know all that's going to happen? It's going to tear a bigger hole. He said, by the way, the new probably doesn't agree with the old. It doesn't look right. It doesn't match. It's faded out. and The old is faded. The new's not. And doesn't really agree. It's in a texture. Well, that's easy to understand. Easy to understand. Easy to understand that that's exactly what happens. And, and he's just using his parable. And they grasp that. You got an old garment and it's falling apart and needs to be patched up. And probably the patchwork's not going to work very good. Then he uses another example. And I'm going to have to camp on this example a little bit. Seems like every time this is brought up, I have to camp on it because we don't understand it like they did. The next thing he says in verse 37, And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But wine, new wine must be put in new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, by the way, it's new wine. It's fresh squeezed. It's not got an alcohol content. The bottles they're talking about here are not bottles like you and I consider bottles. We think of some glass bottle or some plastic bottle. Uh, that's what we think about bottles. We always think about bottles that way. We think about something glass or plastic. And 2,000 years ago, that wasn't true at all. Didn't have either one of them. Didn't have either one of them. Didn't have the glass and certainly didn't have plastic. And most of the time when they were talking about a bottle here, it was Something made out of uh, this wine, what we would call a wine skin. It was a bottle. Uh, when the first time I began to try to get this in my head right, I began to think about a hot water bottle that you get when you're sick. You ever, some of y'all folks know what I'm talking about. 
They were made out of rubber, and they put that on you, and, and you'd just say you wasn't sick, so you didn't have to have that on you as a kid. I'm suddenly miraculously healed. Don't bring that to me. Same thing as a lot of other things they try to put on you as a kid. And, no, I don't need that. I'm breathing good. How come you're breathing through your mouth and not your nose? I don't need that rubbed all over me. I'm fine. It's the same thing with one of those. And it was still a bottle. You see, we, we have a misconception of the understanding of a bottle. And these bottles were wine skins. In other words, they were skins that they had made into a bottle. Now, the thing with new grapes, when it's fresh squeezed, doesn't have an alcohol content. It's got a real high saccharin sugar content in it. Sweet and it's high. And you know what it does that old? It causes it to bust. It's great truth. And he said, so you know that when you have fresh squeezed wine, grapes, new, not alcohol content, it's real high in saccharin. Jesus knew that. He created it. They understood the principle. They put it in the old and the old begin to decay and it will break those bottles and you'll lose your new juice. And so it wasn't about something alcoholic at all. He was just using an illustration that they understood. You cannot take the new and put it in the old or both are lost. Y'all with me? And so Jesus is saying, now listen, I'm not doing what John the Baptist is and I'm not doing what you're doing. I am fulfilling both those things. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, in the beginning of his earthly ministry, a few days prior to this parable, a few days prior to this parable, we find that Jesus says something. You'd have to go all the way to chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew to find this parable. So a few days prior to this parable, maybe a few weeks, a couple of three weeks, maybe more, maybe a month, Jesus is going to preach what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And He's going to deal with the old and the new in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to deal with it in starting reading in verse 17 through 20. Notice what He says. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law, the law be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter in the kingdom of heaven. So now he deals with what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees have taken the law and made it something God never intended it to be. They have taken the law and they have said, Now, in order for you to go to heaven, you have to live perfect. And they've created something that's impossible for you and I to live. Impossible for they themselves to live. No one ever has kept it. No one ever will keep it. And Jesus said, I, I didn't come to destroy the law. What I gave you the law in the first place, Paul says, was be a schoolmaster to bring you to the coming Messiah. That's what I gave you the law for. I gave you the law to show you you're a sinner, which you are, absolutely are. 
But the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the law and they had made it something. If you live good enough, you can earn heaven. It was an old garment. It had a bad hole in it. It had some false doctrine in it. And Jesus said, I did not come to patch up your religion. I ain't come to patch it up. I come to fulfill it. I'm not destroying it. I am actually fulfilling. I am the Messiah of the law. John the Baptist declared in John chapter 1, I'm not him. I'm just saying he's coming. And Jesus fulfilled both the prophecy of the law, the scribes and Pharisees, and of John. So what's the new? What is the new? He hasn't changed anything. He simply fulfilled it. So what is Jesus fulfilling? Go to the Gospel of John chapter 3, number 1. You're going to see something. John chapter 3 and verse number 1. What is it that Jesus is teaching that is a fulfilling of the law that I need and you need? What is it that we need that will is the new that I need, this new garment, this new wineskin? What is it that I need? John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that our teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, by the way, here's a Pharisee. He is a religious leader. He is a devout religious man. No doubt if you met Nicodemus and you talked to him, you would, he'd be a good neighbor. He wouldn't be a thief. Uh, he, he, he'd, be, he'd keep the law. Uh, you'd find him a helpful man. You'd find him a religious man. Matter of fact, if you had some problem in your family, he'd probably say, I'll pray for you. Uh, he would try to encourage you to go to worship with him. You'd find this guy a good neighbor. You also find this man a lost man on his way to hell. You say, why is he on his way to hell? Because he's trusting his works. He's trusting what he's doing. He's misinterpreted everything in the Old Testament. He's tried to make it about works, and it's not about works. And so he comes to Jesus by night and he says, Rabbi, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. He says, hey, you know what? I've been watching you. I've been following you. And there is nobody can do what you do except God be with him. You've opened blind eyes. Only God can do that. You've caused the lame to walk. Only God can do that. You've done some things that only God can do, and I know that God is in you. I know that. You know what Nicodemus is seeking? He doesn't have peace here. Doing the best he can. But when he pillows his head at night, when the Nobody's around him. There's an emptiness that cannot be filled. And he thinks, that man has something that I need. By the way, that's what you and I as Christians ought to be purporting to the world. You know the world doesn't have real peace. They can have their parties. They can have their fun. But when they are alone, there's an emptiness in here. 
And you and I ought to be showing them Jesus because they, they need Jesus. So he comes to Christ. Now watch what Jesus says to him, verse number 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's something new. The new birth. Whenever Jesus says, there's this new cloth and these new bottles, you know what he's saying? The new birth. By the way, I need the new birth. You need the new birth. The old is a patchwork of religion that ought to be pointing us to the new birth. And it's not the same. We need that new birth. Nicodemus must be born again. He had to have the new birth. One of the things that we ought to be telling the world is they need a new birth. Nicodemus had to be born again. By the way, Nicodemus didn't understand that new birth. Verse number 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb be born? Nicodemus said, I don't understand that. I'm an old man. There is no way I can go back into my mother's womb and be reborn. I understand the first birth. I understand that. I understand that first time I was born, but I cannot do that again. That's because it's spiritual. It's not physical. You see, part of the problem with the old patchwork of the law is it was trying to make everything fleshly that we could do with our own hands, we could do with our own ability, something that is fleshly. And this new birth is nothing to do with the flesh, but it's all spiritual. That's why Jesus says to him in verse number 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, that's the first birth, and of the Spirit, uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Spirit's the second birth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that's the water. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, uh, that's the spiritual part of it. Great truth in that. Marvel not that I send to you, you must be born again. Now, by the way, the new is this. When Jesus says, you know what, I, you know how come we can rejoice? and We can have a good time together? It's because I'm telling them the new birth. I'm explaining the new birth. You know, one of the reasons people ought to come into the house of God and be excited together is because of the new birth. Do you, do you know one thing that every Christian that's truly saved has in common with every other Christian is your salvation. You have a new birth. You have been reborn. You have been born again. You have a new birth. It is something that ought to give you excitement and cause, by the way, in common with every other child of God. There may be a lot of other things I don't have in common with, with Christians tonight, but someone that is truly born again, you know what we have in common? The new birth. And you know what we can rejoice together about? The new birth. You know what we understand each other about? Is the new birth. Because you understand that you were born again and you were saved from hell and you now have a home in heaven for one reason. The new birth. The new birth. And Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not sewing new on that old garment that you Pharisees are doing. John the Baptist has clearly said he's not him. He's the forerunner. I am not adding to John. I am what John was preaching about. I'm the new birth. Number two, not only is it new birth, and I'm about done. It ought to be a new creature. Go to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You see this new cloth and this new bottles is, number one, a new birth, but it also ought to be a new creature. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, old things are become new. Do you know what happens to you at the very instant of salvation that you don't even realize? You become a new creature. I didn't understand that the morning I got saved. I mean, I'm a teenager. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in, in real going to church all the time. I'd never read the Bible. We'd never studied it. And I get saved. And now all of a sudden something's changed and I don't even understand it. I'm a new creature. The truth of the matter is, when you got saved, you became a new creature. You were reborn. You had a new birth. You are now a new creature. You've been born into the family of God. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit of God has indwelled you, therefore, if you've really been born again, that birth changed you. You didn't have to change yourself. It changed you. Now, by the way, you've got choices to make. God gives me choices, gives you choices. But you ought to be a new creature. In Christ, it ought to change you. All things ought to become new. Your direction of life ought to be more important now. That purpose of life is, my purpose should not be pleasure. My purpose should not be the world. It ought to be Christ. So when Jesus is saying in this parable, yeah, I've got new, I'm not sowing the new to the old. I've got a new birth. Listen, I'm a new creature. Number three, and I'm done. Go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we find another one of these um, fellows getting saved that was a sinner. And he's a publican. Got another one of these guys that gets saved. Some of these publicans get converted, and we know them by name. Uh, we, we, we know Levi by name. We know Zacchaeus by name. Uh, there probably were some Pharisees converted, but we don't know them by name. But we, don't, we surely know these publicans by name. Because these sinners know they need the Lord. And there's a great truth in that. Luke chapter 19, we see another publican getting saved. The guy's name is Zacchaeus. He gets converted. This third point, I'm not really interested in Zacchaeus' conversion, but I am interested in what Jesus said to him in verse number 10. It's something new. I want you to notice what it says. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You got a new purpose. You see, in our text, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the publicans and the sinners. They shunned them. They stayed away from them. They didn't want them in their midst. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I've got some new cloth and some new bottles. You need the new birth. You need that. You're a new creature. You will be because of the new birth. But you'll also have a new purpose. You're going to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, one thing that true Christianity does is we don't try to conform to the lost world, but we do seek them. We do seek them because they're in trouble. The drug addicts and the drunkards and the whoremongers and the harlots and what you might think is the worst in society, sometimes the ones that get saved and, oh, they know the great forgiveness of God and 
boy, they can expound to people the great love of God. We ought to be seeking those people. We ought to be seeking everyone that's lost. But oftentimes in our society today, do you know the reason some people don't, do not get saved? is because they're good. And we ought to be seeking that which is lost. I found out after I got saved that a lot of my friends wouldn't get saved because they thought they were good. And I found out. Those kids that I knew, those teenagers that I knew, that I knew they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. They were reprobates against God. They knew that. When I started carrying my Bible to school and I started witnessing those kids, they listened because they knew they were sinners. You know what I find out even today? In order for somebody to get saved, I've got to be a new purpose. You say, what's that purpose? I just try to find sinners and get sinners converted. And by the way, good people are sinners, but they don't often see it and they're hard to convert. But all the time, wicked sinners know they're wicked sinners. And they just need Jesus. And he's telling these scribes and Pharisees that are questioning what he's doing, he's saying, I'm not sowing onto that old patchwork that you fellows have messed up. I'm not using the old bottles. It's empty. I've got new cloth and new bottles. New birth, the new creature, and the new purpose. And that's what we ought to be doing, is exactly what Jesus was doing. And we ought to be telling it to a lost and dying world. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I appreciate you being here. You've been very patient tonight. I trust this has helped you in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Invitations like this. I'm not going to do this, but if I was to leave this pulpit and come back to where you were sitting, if I was to get you by the hand, look you square in the eye and ask you this question. If you died right now, do you know you'd go to heaven? Could you give me a good firm handshake, look me square in the eye and say, yes, Mike, I know if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I know that. There was a time in my life that I realized I was, am a sinner. And because of my sin, I could not go to heaven and... By faith, I ask Christ to forgive me and save me. I'm saved. Could you say that? With full assurance in your own heart and know that you're saved. Now, dear friend, if you could not say that, let me say to you, let me say to you in compassion and love, you're going to die and go to hell. Jesus loves you. He does not want you to go to hell. And if you do not know that you're saved... Well, why don't you come and let us take a Bible and show you how to be saved? You say, Preacher, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. All right, let me ask you a question. Are you where God wants you to be tonight? Are you seeking Him? Are you seeking something else? Are you seeking the Lord's will for your life? Or are you seeking your own will? Are you understanding the new birth? You're a new creature. What is your new purpose in life? Is it to seek and to save that which is lost? Or is it to serve you? Well, as Christians tonight, we ought to ask ourselves, what am I doing to keep men, women, boys, and girls out of hell?
What am I doing to keep my family out of hell? What am I doing to keep my friends out of hell? What is my purpose? And it ought to be the new purpose of seeking that which was lost. Father, please bless this invitation. May each one of us examine our own hearts tonight. Lord, may we yield ourselves in thy hands. May the lost be saved. May the saved be challenged, the backslidden reclaimed. And most importantly, may we lift up Jesus. And may that happen in this invitation. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Won't you stand to your feet and keep your heads bowed, please?